True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Season 5 and the 54th episode of the True Crime Fix podcast. Firstly, if you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will automatically download for you upon their release. As I have a lot to cover, there's not going to be a long intro this week. But I do have to say, this is the second part of a two-part case. So, if you have not listened to part one, I would advise that you stop the episode here and go back and listen to episode 53 first. That being said... For everyone who has heard the first part, just a brief refresher. We talked about the early history of Tunisia and how hostilities in the country had reached a fever pitch. We heard about the attack at the Bardo Museum. We heard the story of the 20 tourists who lost their lives. We heard about how the Tunisian authorities believed that they had caught the criminal mastermind behind the attack. We heard how they believed that it was now safe for tourists to return. So without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this case has been dedicated to all of those who lost their lives in the 2015 Tunisian attacks. Sous is a city in Tunisia, located 140 kilometres south of the capital Tunis, and the city has 271,428 inhabitants. Sous is in the central east of the country, on the Gulf of Hamet, which is part of the Mediterranean Sea. Sous's old city has aspects which has made it an ideal place as a film location. Most famous is the 1981 film Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Seuss represents Cairo. The weather in Seuss means that it's a hotspot for sunseekers. With temperatures that can hit 48 degrees Celsius or 118 degrees Fahrenheit, It is warm all year round. Ten kilometres north of Sousse is the resort of Port El Cantui. Opened in 1979, the resort is centred around a large marina with more than 300 moorings. It contains several luxury hotels and blocks of holiday apartments along the beachfront as well as restaurants cafes, a shopping centre 
and a wide range of sports facilities. Despite what had happened earlier in 2015, which had resulted in a significant decrease in tourists compared to the year before, the hotels along this picturesque stretch of the Mediterranean Sea were still busy. One such hotel along the seafront is the Spanish-owned five-star Rio Imperial Mar Harbor Hotel. The international Rio chain was founded in Mallorca by the Rio family in 1953 as a small holiday firm. The San Francisco Hotel, a small 80-bed establishment located in Playa de Palma, Mallorca, was the first hotel of many in the future of this international hotel chain. The 60s saw a real tourist boom in the Balearic Islands, which Louis Ryu Bertrand actively contributed to through his partnership with the German tour operator Dr. Tiggs, known as TUI since 1968. Following the consolidation of charter operations between Germany and Mallorca in the summer months, Louis Ryu went one step further in strengthening the development of tourism in the Balearic Islands by also promoting Mallorca as a winter destination. During the 60s and 70s, the company underwent significant expansion in the Balearic Islands, consolidating its business partnerships all the while. In 1976, Ryu Hotels was established in partnership with the tour operator TUI, Touristic Union International, in order to build new hotels. During the 1990s and the first decade of the 2000s, Ryu underwent great expansion into countries like Mexico, Dominican Republic, Jamaica, Aruba, Bahamas, Cape Verde, Costa Rica, Morocco and Tunisia. The Imperial Mahaba Hotel was one such establishment. The hotel itself had been built in 1904, but had been renovated in 2011 to the Ryu Group standard and its 366 rooms were open for business. An indoor pool, an outdoor pool, and a separate children's play pool, it was the perfect location for a getaway. Friday the 26th of June 2015 started out like any other in a resort destination. The hotel was to host 565 guests, mainly from Western Europe, which was 77% of its capacity. Holidaymakers on the beach in front of the Imperial Mahaba Hotel were just getting ready to go for lunch. As it neared midday, they relaxed on sun loungers. New arrivals had just had their introductory meeting with a tour rep where excursions were pushed and rules of the local culture were outlined. I remember having to do one in Egypt where they advised you about the creeping hot sun and always carrying bottled water due to the way that your stomach may react to the tap water or dehydration. Needless to say, I was young and stupid and ignored both and ended up getting second degree sunburn which blistered and also lost a day of the holiday due to a dodgy stomach. But I digress. 
some of the holidaymakers walked across the hot sand for a swim. Others tried paragliding. All was calm as the temperature rose towards the low 30s Celsius, around 86 degrees Fahrenheit. At approximately 11.15am local time, a van inconspicuously dropped off a passenger down a side road, one block to the north of the Bellevue Hotel in La Rue Fleuve. He then proceeded to walk along the beach in front of the Bellevue Hotel before reaching what was his chosen destination, the Ryu Imperial Mahaba Hotel. CCTV images show the man dressed in a black t-shirt and shorts making his way along the beach, carrying a long object over his shoulder which appeared to be a parasol. The issue was, the man was not carrying a parasol. When he arrived at the five-star hotel, Ryu Imperial Mahaba, at 11.45am, he pulled out a Kalashnikov assault rifle that he had hidden in the parasol. Five magazines, each containing 30 bullets, three hand grenades and fireworks which were intended to cause confusion amongst the civilians and opened fire. He opened fire indiscriminately at tourists on sun loungers on the beach. He had taken a drug, the effect of which was to enhance his physical performance. He started firing, spraying bullets to the right, then to the left. He then proceeded to grab the gun with both hands and aimed it at the front row of sun loungers. The first three victims were Janet Stocker and her husband John, who were killed in the initial barrage, along with Trudy Jones. Next, a couple of beds along, he executed Lorna Carty and Lana Lemaire. He continued along the beach, firing at anyone who moved. Philip Heathcott, Suzanne Davy, Scott Chalky, Stephen Meller, Dennis Thwaites, Elaine Thwaites, Eileen Swanock, John Welsh, Claire Windass, Raymond Fisher and Angela Fisher all succumbed to the wild shooting of a man on a mission. But further down the beach, sun-seeking tourists were not aware of what was about to happen. Lying on his sun lounger, staring out over the turquoise waters of the Gulf and with the stranglers playing through his earphones, Colin Bidwell thought life was good. Over the music, Colin heard a couple of pops. At first he assumed a firework had been set off in celebration on the beach outside the Imperial Mahaba Hotel. But when he turned to his wife and saw her urgently mouthing to run, he knew that something serious was happening. I didn't know what to do in those first few milliseconds, he told the Guardian newspaper. Bullets had whizzed past him and hit the sand. He rolled from the sun lounger and crashed to the floor. He could see feet running away in all directions. 
There was a speedboat on the sand, he said. I went around the boat and hit the deck. There was pounding in my ears. I could hear my heart drumming in my head. I was desperate. I did not know what to do. Colin could not see who was firing the weapon. He did not know how many attackers were on the beach. He assumed that there was more than one. As he placed his head down on the sand and prayed, he decided to take his chances in open water. I ran out to the sea, dived in, swam out underwater as quick as I could, he said. After a while, I was tired. I popped my head up out of the water. I could see a massacre. There was no doubt about it. Treading water 50 metres from land, he noticed that the back of his arm felt peculiar. Bullets had grazed his shoulder and leg. But the distance from the shoreline was making him panic, so he soon forgot about the discomfort. A speedboat driver from the neighbouring hotel's water sports team saw him and pulled him from the water. He pulled me in. Don't worry, my friend. I'll take you somewhere safe, he said. As holidaymakers fled for their lives, the gunman continued his attack, entering the hotel complex via the pool area. In the outdoor pool area, he shot and killed seven people, five of whom were British nationals. They were Christopher Bell, Sharon Bell, David Thompson, Anne McCurry and James McCurry. He then walked up the steps on the south side of the hotel and walked into the side entrance that led towards the indoor pool. In this area, he shot and killed five people, all of whom were British nationals. They were Bruce Wilkinson, Adrian Evans, Charles Evans, Joel Richards and Lisa Graham. He then left the pool area, walked through the reception area and threw a door into an administration area. From there, he went up to the first floor, where he detonated one of the grenades that he was carrying, having the desired effect making people run from their cover. He shot and killed three British nationals, William Graham, Lisa Burbage and Carly Lovett. He then made his way down to the car park at the front of the hotel. There he shot and killed John Stollery and Christopher Dyer. He also shot Stuart Cullen, who died from fragment wounds to the neck and head a while later. After what seemed like a long journey that only lasted a few minutes, Colin Bidwell was dropped off on the beach outside the neighbouring Bellevue Hotel. As he staggered up the sand, he thought of his wife. He raced through the Bellevue and towards the road that runs along the front of both of the hotels. Once there, Colin tried to climb over a wall when he saw the barrel of an AK-47 emerge around the corner. Scared of being spotted by the killer, Colin lowered himself down again before seeing someone throw tiles at the attacker from a nearby roof. Colin recalled to the Guardian newspaper, I now know that that guy saved my life 
because while he was doing that, the guy with the gun was looking up. The gunman then made his way back through the hotel and onto the beach, where he first turned north, walking about 100 metres towards the Palm Marina Hotel, but he then turned back south and walked slowly along the beach in front of the Ryu Imperial Mahaba Hotel. He then threw his mobile into the sea. He continued walking past the Bellevue Hotel and then turned inland up a side road. Using the available CCTV recordings and the video film taken by Abim Hadar Hassan, it appears that the time between the gunman shooting his first victim on the beach and his last in the car park is somewhere between 14 and a half and 16 minutes. On the day of the attack, only three guards were on duty, a measure which had been brought in following the attack in the capital Tunis that we covered in the last episode. One guard was on the main gate. He saw frightened tourists leaving the hotel and was told there was a gunman on the beach shooting at people. He telephoned the police and the National Guard. Rather than going to investigate and helping the frantic crowds, however, he made good his escape and went to the Saviva Hotel nearby. A second guard was monitoring the visitors to the Thalasso Spa, which was connected to the hotel. He heard gunfire coming from inside the hotel. He went and spoke to the guard at the main gate, locked the gate to the Thlasso Sabar, and he too made good his escape. Again, great security. He did not have a mobile phone, so he could not call for backup. The third guard was on the beach. His role was mainly to provide services for the residents of the hotel but he was also meant to refuse entry to those who did not have the right to enter. When he saw the gunman shooting tourists on the beach, he went and hid behind the building in which the water sports equipment was kept. He also did not have a mobile phone, so was unable to communicate what was happening. A fourth guard was at home at the time of the attack, and was rung by the guard on the main gate and told what was happening. He arrived before the security intervened. Although in general the response of the staff was disorganised and chaotic, which I suppose is acceptable if someone is waving an AK-47 in your face, I'm pretty sure most of us would have run away as far as possible. Some of them displayed incredible personal bravery, in trying to protect their guests. It should also be noted the courage that was displayed by a number of guests, but more on that a bit later. A few minutes prior to the attack, a number of witnesses had noticed two mounted police officers patrolling the beach. They were each armed with a Browning pistol and five rounds of ammunition. According to witnesses, they were about two and a half kilometres from the instant when it began and did not attend for about 30 minutes, by which time 38 people had lost their lives. 
a witness describing them being on the beach outside the hotel during the shooting. They did nothing to confront the gunman. Two marine guards arrived at the scene by an inflatable boat. One of them was armed with a rifle and two magazines, each containing 20 rounds of ammunition. The other was unarmed. After delaying for a period of time, the two guards entered the hotel grounds where the gunman was. The armed guard fired two rounds at the gunman but missed. The gunman then threw a hand grenade in his direction. It did not explode, but on the guard's own account, he fainted through terror and panic, dropping his weapon in the process. When he retained consciousness, he fled and hid behind a parasol on the beach. The other guard took off his shirt to hide the fact that he was an officer. The weapon was picked up by a speedboat driver who had heard gunshots and gone to the scene. He was wearing red shorts and was bare-chested. He had seen the guard trying to shoot the gunman and faint when the hand grenade was thrown at him. The boat driver picked up the gun and tried to shoot the gunman, but he was unable to fire the rifle. He then went to the beach where he handed the gun to one of his colleagues. With the exception of the two marine guards, no police or security officer entered the hotel grounds until the gunman had killed all 38 tourists. A division of the tourist security police were informed about the attack at around 11.45am when they were about two minutes away from the scene. Instead of driving there directly, the senior officer ordered the driver to go to the National Security Police Station on the pretext that they required more weapons. They were already in possession of two assault rifles, two bulletproof vests and two ballistic helmets. They had everything that they required to confront a lone gunman and could have been on the scene within minutes. Estimates for how long it would have taken for them to get to the scene ranged between two and seven minutes at the most. How many lives could have been saved if they had been quicker to respond? Instead of going straight to the scene, they went straight to the police station and CCTV shows that they remained there for more than eight minutes before setting off again. The delay was deliberate and unjustifiable. It ultimately took this team more than 30 minutes to arrive at the scene. When the senior officer arrived at the hotel, he remained outside and did not fire a single shot. At around 11.55am, the operations room of the military were informed of the attack. Although it may be that some members of the National Guard were aware of it earlier, soldiers of the National Guard attended the scene and they and others exchanged fire with the gunman who was eventually killed as a result of gunshot wounds. By then though, the damage had already been done and so many lives had been lost. Charles Patrick Evans, or Pat as he was known, Adrian Evans, 
and Joel Richards were three generations of one family who were tragically slain on that fateful day. Pat was 78 years old, Adrian his son was 49 and Joel his grandson was 19 at the time of their passing. The three men with Pat's youngest grandson Owen had booked a boys trip away to celebrate the 16 year old Owen's GCSE results. Joel was a very talented football referee and at the age of 19 was tipped for success. He was a Walsall Football Club fan and was studying physical education at Worcester University with the view of converting that into a PGCE to become a teacher. Rebecca Foster, who led Joel on his course, said he was an exceptional student, a natural role model whose infectious personality made him popular throughout the university. He was very hard-working, he was conscientious and he motivated those other students around him, she said. Posthumously, he was recognised with the BBC Get Inspired Unsung Hero Special Award for his dedication to the community for his youth refereeing. At the subsequent inquest, Susie Richards paid tribute to her family. There was barely a dry eye in the room as she read out the three powerful tributes. One to her son Joel, one to her brother Adrian and the other one for her father, Charles Patrick Evans. She said she and her mother Maureen had stayed at home to allow the four men on one of their regular Jolly Boys outings as they called them. They had arrived at the Imperial Mara Harbour Hotel on the evening of the 25th of June. Within 12 hours, she said, my dad, my son and my brother were killed. This horrific event now leaves my mum and I to bring up Owen alone. There are three empty chairs now every Sunday for lunch. Three empty seats at Walsall FC Stadium. We will never be six again. We have been cut in half and we will never get over this. We will be forever heartbroken. She said that 78-year-old Pat was born and raised in the Black Country, an area of the English West Midlands which has got its name from the thick soot which covered the town during the industrial days of the 1840s. He worked as a foundryman which is someone who casts metals, but was also a magistrate in West Bromwich. He adored his family and idolised his two grandsons. He was a husband, dad, granddad, uncle, brother-in-law and friend, but most of all, what I would say was that he was made of the old stock, she said. A true gentleman, with old-fashioned ways. He had manners and time for people. He would stop and say hello and talk and help anyone. He respected people and in return people respected him. He was loved by everyone who met him and loved so much by his family. She then moved on to her brother 
or Uncle Aid as he was known to her sons. He worked as a gas services manager for Samwell Council, she said, and enjoyed travelling the world with his friends and nephews. Sporty and active, he and Joel had recently become interested in cycling and were planning to travel to Europe for the Tour de France upon their return from Tunisia. She concluded, I miss my brother every day. He was much more than a brother. He was who I used to turn to and always knew the answer to any problem I had. If anything broke, Aid fixed it. Adrian Evans was killed at the side of the indoor swimming pool of the hotel as a result of gunshot wounds to the neck and torso. Both Pat and Joel were shot in the same area and died as a result of gunshot wounds to the head. Owen was shot in the shoulder and suffered significant wounds but went on to make a full recovery. Stephen Meller was 59 years old and a father of three from Bodmin in Cornwall. He was on holiday with his wife Cheryl. The couple, who were looking forward to retirement, had been relaxing on sun loungers when they had heard a huge bang sound about noon. Cheryl Meller, speaking in her local newspaper, said the initial blasts were really close and her husband said, Oh my God, this is going, really going down. The couple could see the gunman standing at the edge of the sun loungers, holding a weapon about 20 inches long. Stephen was killed after receiving shots to his chest and abdomen. But he died a hero, sacrificing himself to save his wife, who suffered life-changing injuries. The most devastating thing was Stephen did not live to see the birth of his third grandchild a boy called Thomas Stephen, who was named after him. Carly Lovett was a 24-year-old beauty blogger and photographer from Gainsborough in Lincolnshire. Carly was and always will be our beautiful shining light, her parents Joanne and Kev, fiancé Liam and other family members said. She had recently got engaged to Liam her childhood sweetheart of 10 years and was on holiday with him at the time. A graduate of Lincoln University, she had worked for an e-commerce company called Fizzo Limited in Fillingham near Gainsborough. Carly sustained a gunshot wound to the chest and injuries from the grenade the gunman had set off. Despite Liam's desperate attempts to revive her with CPR, a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, Carly died in his arms. Her last words telling him how much she loved him. John Stollery was 58 years old when he was killed. The ex-soldier with the British Army had completed two tours in Belfast as a private in the 2nd Battalion of the Parachute Regiment. Upon retiring from the Army, He worked for Nottinghamshire County Council for more than three decades, including 16 years dedicated to helping children in care and graduated with a bachelor's degree in social sciences in 2007. 
John and his wife Cheryl were running away from the sound of gunfire when he was shot in the head and killed. At the inquest, Cheryl said, I turned around thinking John was immediately behind me and said, John, he's there, he's got a gun. The gunman went past me. I expected John to be at the side of me or just behind me. And when I turned around, John was on the floor. I screamed, no, very loudly, and John, John. I went back to him, stood over him, and could see from that moment he had already died. Although his eyes were open, there was nothing there. I could see the damage caused to his head, especially the left-hand side of his temple. John Welsh and Eileen Swanock were on holiday together when they were both killed in the attack. John was 74 and Eileen was 73 at the time. The couple were from Biddeston in Wiltshire. Eileen's granddaughter Lucy described her as a loving, wonderful woman in a Facebook post. I'm heartbroken she's been taken from us in such a cruel way, she wrote. The couple have been travelling to Tunisia twice a year for the last eight years. They have been together for almost a decade. As for John, he was a retired plumber and was born in Abertillery, South Wales, but moved to Corsham at an early age and lived the rest of his life in that town. He was one of three siblings and had three children, four grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. He met Eileen, who was a widow herself, following the death of his partner, Nanette, in 2005. As well as travelling, he loved to socialise. We were so pleased when he met Eileen, as he had someone special to share these things with, his family said. Chris Dyer was 32 years of age when he was killed in the grounds of the hotel. Chris was from Watford and was holidaying with his wife Gina. He was a member of the Watford Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Club as well as a supporter of Watford Football Club. Chris was shot in the head as he and his wife fled back to the hotel. Gina Van Dort was shot under the chin by the gunman with the bullet exiting through her eye. Despite her serious injuries, however, she survived. David Thompson was 80 years old and was from Tadley in Hampshire. He is understood to have worked for the Automatic Weapons Establishment, a company who handles the government's nuclear defences. He was described as a very fit person and a very keen walker. David Thompson was killed on the steps leading from the outdoor swimming pool to the terrace area within the grounds of the hotel as a result of a gunshot wound to his chest. Philip Heathcote was 53 years old and was from Felixstowe. Philip, who worked as a traffic operator for Gold Star Transport, was a keen rugby and cricket player in his youth and he had continued as a cricket coach for local children in Suffolk as well as a league umpire.
He also loved to watch his son play sports and talk about the games he often played in. Originally from Manchester, Philip was also a lifelong Manchester United fan, the inquest heard. Philip died from a gunshot wound to his chest and abdomen. John and Janet Stocker were aged 74 and 63 respectively. They lived in Morden in Surrey. The Stockers were keen travellers and still very much in love. The family said at the subsequent inquest that they were a happy couple, both young at heart and enjoyed all life could afford. They were frequent flyers and enjoyed travelling to new places and exploring. John and Janet's home life revolved around the most simplest of pleasures, family and friends. They died together doing what they enjoyed most, being side by side. Janet and John Stocker were both killed on the beach as a result of gunshot wounds to the pelvis. They were killed two days before they were due to return home to Surrey and had just arranged dinner with friends and family so that they could end their holiday on a high. Trudy Jones was one of the first victims of the gunman. Trudy was 51 years old and from Blackwood in South Wales. A statement from Trudy's family read, Our mother, of all people, didn't deserve this. Such a caring person who put everyone else before herself. She was the rock of our family and kept us all going. None of us have a clue how we're going to cope without her. Trudy worked at Highfield's nursing home and was always willing to help others. She had four children and she was on holiday with a friend, Carol Ann Powell, who survived the attack and later had to identify Trudy's body. Trudy's injuries were so significant she had to be identified by her nail polish by her friend and was formally identified by her dental records. Jim McCreary, who was 66, and Anne McCreary, who was 63, were unfortunately another couple who were killed by the gunman. The retired couple from Cumbernauld in North Lanarkshire in Scotland were devoted to each other and lived to enjoy life, their family said. They spent their lives contributing so much to their community. Through their many interests, they made many friends and helped many causes within and outside of the church. Their son Stuart said that they would be sorely missed. Anne sang and played the guitar at Abron Hill Church, while Jim helped hundreds of young people over many years as the captain of the 5th Cumbernauld Boys Brigade Company. Anne was killed on the steps leading up from the outdoor swimming pool to the terrace area within the grounds of the hotel as a result of a gunshot wound to the chest. Jim survived the initial shooting and was transported in the rear of an ambulance when help arrived. Whilst en route to hospital though, he died as a result of gunshot wounds to the pelvis. Christopher Bell, who was 59, 
and Sharon Bell, who was 54, were from Killingbeck in Leeds and were described as hard-working by their neighbours. Christopher worked for the Northern Rail in Leeds and Sharon was said to be a health and care worker. They had recently become grandparents. Christopher Bell was killed beside the outdoor swimming pool within the grounds of the hotel as a result of a gunshot wound to his face, neck and chest. Sharon Bell was killed beside the outdoor swimming pool as a result of a gunshot to her chest and abdomen. Lisa Burbage was 66 years old and was from Wickham near Gateshead in the northeast of England. She was the grandmother of four and was a mother to Melanie and Louise and devoted to her husband Bill, who died exactly ten years before her. She loved her holidays and been to Tunisia nine times, with six to the same hotel where she lost her life. Lisa Burbage was killed in an office adjacent to the indoor swimming pool of the hotel as a result of a gunshot wound to the head. Bruce Wilkinson was 72 years of age and was from Gaul in East Riding, Yorkshire. He was a retired Yorkshire ambulance service worker and had been married to his wife Rita for 51 years. They had chosen the five-star Imperial Mahaba Hotel because they had stayed there before and it was close to the beach. They also believed it was safe. His family said he was a kind and compassionate man with a dry sense of humour. Bruce was killed in the corridor on the ground floor of the hotel as a result of a gunshot wound to the neck. Claire Windass was 54 years of age and was from Hull. She was on holiday with her husband Jim when the attack happened. She had two children and two stepchildren and lived in Scunthorpe for 35 years before moving to Hull in 2012 when she married Jim Windass. Staff at North Lincolnshire Council, where she worked for 18 years, were said to be deeply saddened by the news of her death. Claire was killed on the beach as a result of a gunshot wound to the neck on what was her husband's 65th birthday. More than 300 people turned up at her funeral as her family said in the eulogy a testament to how many people her kindness had touched. Dennis and Elaine Thwaites were 70 and 69 years of age respectively and were both living in Blackpool. Dennis played professionally for Birmingham City Football Club between 1962 and 1972, playing 86 times for the club and scoring 18 goals. He had also represented England at youth level where he scored against Scotland within 60 seconds of his debut before retiring at the age of 27. He married his wife Elizabeth, who was a hairdresser, before setting up home in Blackpool, where he became a hospital porter. His daughter Lindsay said he always had a good dad joke up his sleeve, which would make us cry with laughter. 
paying tribute to her mum, she said, As a daughter, I looked up to and admired her. She was caring and beautiful, with so much love to give. She was loved and liked by all she met, and she lit up every room that she walked in. They had been holidaying with a group of friends, and on the morning of the 26th of June, had chosen to sit a few rows back next to the gangway between the two banks of sunbeds. Their friends all managed to escape. Elaine Thwaites was killed on the beach as a result of a gunshot wound to her chest and pelvis. Dennis was killed on the beach as a result of a gunshot wound to his chest. Ray Fisher was 75 years old and Angela Fisher was 69 years old and both resided in Leicester. Son Adam and daughter Donna said it was a source of comfort that they were enjoying a holiday when they were taken. Donna added, Dad loved to travel and share a drink with others. He was very friendly and full of gusto. It was perhaps apt or ironic that he died on holiday. Angela Fisher was killed on the beach as a result of a gunshot wound to her head, neck, chest and abdomen. Raymond Fisher was also killed on the beach as a result of gunshot wounds to his neck and chest. Stuart Cullen was 52 and was from Lowestoft in East Anglia. Christine and Emma Jane Cullen, his wife and daughter, said he lived for his girls and juggled life at home, being medically retired from the prison service. Their statement issued through Suffolk Police described the family as the Three Musketeers and said that Stuart had a wicked sense of humour and only ever wanted to put a smile on people's faces. He was dad, husband, best friend and soulmate. The legacy he leaves, his strength, the strength to move forward, whatever that may look like, said the family. Stuart Cullen was killed in the car park at the front of the hotel as a result of blast-generated fragment wounds to the head and neck from the grenade which was detonated. William Graham, known as Billy, was 51, and his wife Lisa Graham was 50. They were both from Bankfoot in Perth and Kinross. They were in Tunisia to celebrate Lisa's 50th birthday. Billy worked as a turnstile operator on match days at St Johnson FC's McDermott Park, having previously served for 22 years in the 5th Royal Inniskilling Dragoon Guards. Billy was part of the St Johnson family and a great ambassador for the club who always did well at his job with a smile on his face, said the Saints chairman Steve Brown. At their funeral, Reverend Sidney Graham said, Billy and Lisa had a lovely relationship and life together at Bankfoot with their much-loved daughter Holly and Bailey Boy, the mini long-haired dashhound who earned a special place in their family life. Billy and Lisa were both killed in a corridor on the first floor administration area of the hotel and both as a result of gunshot wounds to the chest. Sue Davy was 43 
and Scott Chalkley was 42 when they both lost their lives. Sue was from Tamworth and Scott was from Derby and they were on holiday together and relaxing on sun loungers when the attack took place. Sue was a mum of three. Paying tribute, her son Connor remembered her as a caring, supportive and always willing to solve any problem with her do-good attitude. He also paid tribute to Scott, joking that he had been a wonderful addition to the family, even though he was an Arsenal fan. Scott really did give Mum a new lease on life. He was a really good guy and gave Mum a lot of happiness. Knowing that she was with someone like that was really comforting. The couple both worked for seven Trent Water. Flags at Tamworth Borough Council and Tamworth Castle were flown at half-mast as a mark of respect. Prior to that, Scott had been medically retired from the Royal Fusiliers. Sue Davy was killed on the beach as a result of a gunshot wound to her chest and neck. Scott Chalky was also killed on the beach as a result of a gunshot wound to his chest, abdomen and pelvis. Lorna Carty was 54 years old and was from Robinstown, County Meath in Ireland. Her husband Declan said he was in his hotel room and his wife was on the beach when the attack began. I woke up to what I first thought was fireworks It sounded like a machine gun, he said. I looked out, but everything looked normal. There was a jet ski and a paraglider moving through the water. He tried to phone his wife, but got no answer. He took shelter in his room with other guests, during which they could hear glass smashing and bullets ricocheting. After the attack, he went looking for his wife. I went to the beach. I lifted a towel. It was Lorna, he said. She was lying with her head to one side, as if she was lying in the sun. The couple had gone on holiday after Declan had suffered a heart attack. They were only staying at the hotel after being moved from another one where construction work was taking place and the attack took place on the day that they were due to fly home. Larry Hayes was 56 and Martina Hayes was 55 and they were both from Atlone in Ireland and were on their third trip to the resort. Larry had worked for transport company Air Arian for the last 20 years. He was a school transport inspector they were waiting around on the beach for their bus transfer to the airport when the gunman opened fire. It was only a matter of minutes before they were due to leave the coastal town. Larry was described as an ordinary family man who was well liked by everyone and his wife as being extremely warm and friendly. Svetlana Lamere was 54 when she was killed. She was originally from the Ukraine, but was now residing with her husband Emil in Belgium. 
Svetlana, known as Lana, worked in the kitchens of the San Luc Clinic in Bourges. She was a terribly generous woman, of a kindness like I have never seen. I saw her as a mother, and she told me that I was like her daughter, said her daughter-in-law, Olga. Maria de Gloria Morea was 76 years old and was a retired teacher from Villanova de Gaia in Portugal. She was on vacation alone in Tunisia for the first time after her husband's death. She had chosen this destination because she felt good in the country which she regularly went on vacation. The family was surprised when they were unable to contact Maria after the attack, but after obtaining confirmation that a Portuguese woman had not survived, their worst fears were confirmed. Tatiana Komenko was 61 years old when she was murdered on the beach. She resided in the Russian capital, Moscow. Tatiana's daughter, who was staying with her at the hotel, was also wounded in the leg and shoulder. She underwent surgery at a Tunisian hospital before returning to Moscow for further treatment, but survived. The German Foreign Office confirmed that the last two victims were German nationals. For their privacy, they decided not to reveal their identities, but did indicate that the victims were both women, one 78 years of age, who was on holiday for four weeks and was due to go back to Munich two days later. The other was 75 years old. Between the 1st and the 4th of July, the bodies of all 30 British nationals killed in the attacks were flown from Tunisia to RAF Bryce Norton in Oxfordshire. So who would go to a tourist hotspot with a Kalashnikov rifle and kill so many people. The gunman was identified as Tunisian national, born on the 19th of August 1992, by the name of Saifedean Razgi. He was the second son of Hakim Razgi and Radia Mani. He had embraced foreign and western influences, from hip-hop music to Real Madrid football club, and was a keen breakdancer, posting videos on social media pages. His family were poor and suffered the loss of a younger son in a freak accident when he was hit by lightning, but Razgi had gone to university and got a degree in electronic network management that offered hope of a more prosperous life. Rezgi came from Garfour, a town known for its ultra-conservative population, but had not been considered particularly devout in religion himself. He became radicalised in the last 18 months of his life. Unlike the attackers in the last episode, it was unclear what the trigger was, but friends said that he had travelled to Libya for military training. Tunisia's interior secretary said that Rezgi had visited the neighbouring country in January, travelling with fellow jihadists, who afterwards carried out the attack that targeted the tourists at Bardo Museum.
Rezgi visited Libya again in March during the academic spring vacation. He returned to do his master's degree course after finishing what was almost certainly his final combat training across the border and sat his end of year exams. He passed with an average mark of 11.76 out of 20 and picked up his certificate on the 29th of May as the college was closing for the summer. At the same time, Rezgi was shutting down his rental of the house that he shared with six other young men next to the Mosque of the Seven Virgins, a low-key place of worship used by locals in the impoverished area. All the tenants simply disappeared one night. To most of his classmates and staff at the university and to a wide array of acquaintances, Rezgi had appeared to be a well-adjusted, if unremarkable, modern young man, not particularly interested in religion or politics, clean-shaven, with a love for techno music. But at his home, he and his companions led secretive lives, refusing to socialise with other residents and staying indoors for long hours. A group of outsiders had started to hold prayers at the mosque, which had been left unsupervised by the absence of its elderly imam. They would all disappear together behind the white front door of Rezgi's house. Three had travelled to Syria, where Tunisia provides the largest contingent of foreign jihadists, and two of them had eventually died there. A terrorist cell operating in the Sousse region had been asked to monitor an easy target for an attack. They had identified the Rio Imperial Mar Harbour Hotel as a possible target because of a considerable number of foreign tourists and only a few Tunisians stayed there. The cell stalked out the hotel, contacted the gunman and he, in turn, was guided through the location and carried out his own observations. A post-mortem revealed that the gunman had been shot 20 times during his escape. Soon after the attack, ISIS claimed responsibility, declaring Abu Yahya al-Kawaran was responsible, the nom de gar given to its latest poster boy, whose killings had caused so much grief to Britain and also threatened to cripple Tunisia's tourist industry. It wasn't until 2019 that the investigation was completed and anyone came to trial for the two attacks. Seven people were sentenced to life imprisonment for their parts in the two attacks. Dozens of defendants faced two separate trials. Three were given life sentences for the homicide attacks at the Bardot Museum in March 2015, whilst four received the same term for the shooting rampage at Seuss Tourist Resort. Other defendants were also sentenced to between 6 and 16 years. The court heard that the two attacks for which Islamic State claimed responsibility were closely linked. Several defendants said the fugitive Shamsuddin Sandi was the mastermind of both.
According to Tunisian media, Sandy was killed in the US airstrike in neighbouring Libya in February 2016, although there was no official confirmation. Among those facing trial were six security personnel accused of failing to provide assistance to people in danger during the Seuss attack, some of which I discussed earlier. One suspect questioned in court was Mamou Kachouri from Tunis. He said that he helped plan the Bardo attacks, including preparing mobile phones for Sandy, who was a neighbour and a long-term friend. Kachouri, who was 33 years old, said he was driven by a duty to participate. Other defendants accused of helping prepare the attacks said they had only discussed ideas with friends. Several alleged that they were tortured in detention. In the UK, an inquest was also being held at the Royal Courts of Justice. With the total of 30 victims from the UK during the Seuss attack, this was the single biggest loss of life since the London attacks of 7-7. There had been widespread criticism of the Tunisian police force's response to the killings. British judge Nicholas Lorraine Smith, who held the inquest into the deaths of the Britons amongst the holidaymakers, said that the police's response had been at best shambolic, at worst cowardly. Their response could and should have been more effective, he said. Andrew Ritchie, a lawyer representing 20 victims' families, read out a January 2015 report by a British diplomat saying that there had been little in the way of effective security to prevent or respond to an attack at the beach. The final part of the legal aspects is the pending civil claim against the tour operators TUI. TUI came under significant scrutiny over its handling of the Foreign Office's travel advice to Tunisia, as well as the security at the hospital. During his summing up, the coroner found TUI did not inform customers where to find the Foreign Office's advice in the wake of the prior attack on the Bardo National Museum prior to the June attacks. Said customers believed that they had been reassured by TUI in the wake of the Bardo attack that it was safe to travel to Tunisia, although this was disputed by TUI. Lawyers Erwin Mitchell, representing the families, had urged the coroner to rule that neglect played a part in their loved one's death, alongside a conventional finding of unlawful killing. But Judge Lorraine Smith told the inquest that legal precedents prevented inquests from applying that conclusion to tourists on holiday because they were not dependent on the travel company or the hotel. Referring to existing precedents, he said, they very substantially limit the circumstances in which neglect can feature in the conclusions. The civil trial is due to take place in February 2022. It must be stressed that TUI deny any wrongdoing and have not been found guilty in a court of law. 
In a message on their website, Kylie Hutchinson, who is a senior associate solicitor at Irwin Mitchell, states, This is a highly complex and unprecedented legal case which has been brought against Tui by the families of those killed and the survivors of the attack who were left seriously injured. The traumatic events that the victims witnessed and experienced have left both physical and emotional scars. We continue to provide all the necessary support and resources to our clients and to those who continue to mourn the loss of their loved ones at each and every juncture, of which there remains a lengthy process. The seven-week inquest in January and February 2017 involved extensive case preparation with the wide involvement of many interested parties from around the world, including the Metropolitan Police and the Foreign Commonwealth Development Office, the FCDO. Many of the complex issues to be determined at trial are also matters of national security that are highly sensitive. Therefore, we continue to follow additional evidential safeguards in the determination and use of any sensitive materials and documents in regular liaison with the FCDO in conjunction with TUI's legal representatives. Every effort has been taken to substantially progress and prepare this action comprehensively, which has required us collating evidence from sources all over the world. Some of this information is considered sensitive for security reasons. We're also still fighting for disclosure of certain documents by TUI, which we believe will shed further light on their preparation for potential terrorist attacks in the region. The court has now confirmed that the trial of liability issues should begin in February 2022. This is an important step forward for our clients in their long-running battle to receive the justice that they deserve. Many of our clients tragically lost their loved ones and many others have been left with life-changing injuries and still require significant resources to help support them in their lives. Some of our clients require additional rehabilitation and therapies and all of them want to know why they weren't better protected. In the months and years leading up to this attack, there was an escalation in terrorist activity in Tunisia, which meant far more rigorous and effective security measures should have been in place at this hotel. While our clients have all suffered in different ways, they are united in their determination to ensure that justice is done for those killed and severely injured and for the lessons to be learned to improve safety standards for future holidaymakers. Before we go this week, I just want to tie up some loose ends from this episode. Do you remember the story of Colin Bidwell? He returned to Seuss a year after and met the man who not only saved his life but risked his own in the process. Monsif Mayel, who gave him one of those tiles from that fateful day as a gift. The ones which had ultimately saved his life. 
In January 2017, documents obtained by BBC's Panorama identified Shamsuddin al-Sandi as the orchestrator behind the attack. On the 4th of March 2019, His Royal Highness Prince Harry attended a ceremony at Cannon Hill Park in Birmingham to unveil the Seuss and Bardot Memorial, which was dedicated to the 31 British people who lost their lives and all of those affected by the two attacks in Tunisia in 2015. The Duke of Sussex was joined by 300 guests, which included families of the victims and those caught up in both attacks, as well as Harriet Baldwin, Minister of State for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and Department for International Development. The Lord Mayor of Birmingham also attended. The ceremony was led by BBC newsreader Ben Brown, who reported from Seuss soon after the attack had happened, and included readings from families of the victims and music by the Birmingham Bach Choir. The memorial, entitled Infinite Wave, was designed by George King Architects. So one last thing for this week. On the 26th of June 2015, attacks occurred in France, Kuwait, Syria, Somalia and Tunisia. One day following a deadly massacre in Syria. The day of attacks was dubbed Bloody Friday. Over 403 people were killed on that day in attacks that ISIS claimed to be responsible for. Were they all coordinated? No one really knows. But if not, it is one massive coincidence. So that's it for this episode. Once again, thank you so much for all of your amazing support and loyalty. It means a lot to me. Please make sure that you follow me on one of the social media platforms for regular updates on the show. On Twitter, it's at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of information on the week's cases. Also a reminder that the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search truecrimefix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, then please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.